back to this, this uh, Acts chapter 7, right? Woo! It was a, kind of a big, big, big chapter. We found out in that chapter that God likes to reach hard people. And sometimes it's hard to tell hard truth and good truth to hard people, right? And we, we talked about that a little bit. But we determined at the very end of that that God loves hard people. He does. He loves hard people. In fact, all of us, to one degree or another, is a hard person. And, he, and it took a lot for us to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and to be one. Uh, but make no mistake, there are hard cases out there. There are hard people. There are people locked in that are very against the gospel and against what God is doing. And they resist constantly what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. They're hard cases, and yet God loves them. So I've got a few focus questions that I want to ask you this morning. And you can write some of them down, and we'll throw the next slide up. And we can see some of these questions. And I want you to write them down. Because these are going to focus us as we take a look at this next chapter. And this next chapter is a big chapter. We're not going to look at the whole message. Because the message is like from verse 1, where Stephen begins to give his defense, through verse 53. And then it gives the commentary 54 through 60 on what the result of his defense was and how people reacted to it. We're going to read that. But we're not going to read his whole message. But I want you just to consider these questions. How far should you go? Should you as a believer, you as a person that says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, how far should you go to reach a hard person? We're talking a hard case. How far? You answered that question for yourself? Let's go on. To what extent will God work or suffer to reach people who don't want to be reached? Anybody know somebody who doesn't want to be reached? Come on, raise your hands. People, some people are passive about that. Some people are very militant and out there with it. Right? But we all know them. Number three, to what degree does God wish that none should perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved? To what degree does God believe that and want that and feel that? And do we agree with that? Do we have the same sentiment that we wished that none would perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved? How far does God want you to go in partnership with him? How far does he want you to go to reach hard people? Have you ever thought about that? To show and convince them that he lives. That he lives in you. And that he really loves them. How far does God want you to go to partner with him? See, I used to be zealous, and man, I used to try to push the envelope of that when I first came to Christ. And you've heard me talk about that. I tried the evangelism method of throwing people up against walls and down and trying to get them to accept Jesus. It didn't work. That's not how far God wants me to go. I one time put the big sticker over my football helmet because we were playing a, a school that a lot of the friends... That, I knew it was a Catholic school, all-boys school, but I had partied with a lot of these kids before uh, I came to Christ. And they all professed their faith in Jesus, but they didn't follow him at all and didn't live for him. So I put across my football helmet, Jesus is Lord. And I come out there 
to play against him because I'm going to witness to him. And one of the first plays we're up, I'm a fullback. I'm getting down, getting ready. And I hear one of the linebackers on the other side look at me and go, what the, you know, F? Does Jesus and Lord mean? And I'm sitting here going down. I go, that's exactly the question you should answer. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so militant and so zealous to witness for Jesus, which was a mistake. Because I found out that local sports writers love to get angles like that and then play them up as they talk about a game and then make you the biggest focus of it, right? And then your team feels like, well, it's Kelly against this other team. And we didn't do anything. And so I had to fix that and make that right. Because that was wrong and the Lord showed me that. And I told him, hey, I won't do that again because I am part of this team. But I just want you to know my heart. And they knew me, so they accepted that. But I had to be careful with that. I couldn't do that again. How far does God want you to go to reach hard people? I want you to read with me a passage. And it shows us how far the follower of Jesus, Stephen, went. Wow. And to what extent God desired to, to have Stephen, Stephen partner with him to make God's love and his plan real to these hard people that God was trying to reach. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to chapter 7. We're going to just read verses 54 through 60. And then we're gonna, we'll, we'll reference the other part, which was actually Stephen's message that got them all agitated, so they responded like what we're going to read. Hear God's word. When the members of the Sanhedrin, these are the leadership group, right? They're the leaders, they're the ones in charge, they're the religious elite. It says, when they heard this, they heard Stephen's defense, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Wouldn't you say these people are pretty much, they're hacked off. You can say it another way, can't you? But they were spitting mad. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him. Now that's violent. You know, these men have had enough. These are religious leaders that are used to pomp and circumstances and decorum. And they are livid. They are uncorked. They are coming as one mob, and they're going to do the dirty nastiness that they can, as much as they can do. They're ready to do it. I don't know how well religious leaders fight. <laughs> I don't know how strong they were. But when you got them on mass. They're a formidable force to reckon with. And here they were, coming at him, at the top of their, uh, and they rushed him, yelling at the top of their voices. They dragged him out of the city. Think of that. You ever been drugged by somebody? You ever been thrown down and drugged? Come on now, think of that. Put yourself in those shoes. They dragged him out of the city, and then they began to stone him. I know none of us have ever been stoned. We've had a lot of dirt clod fights growing up and, and a lot of um, you know, English walnut fights when they're in their greens. They feel like a, like a stone that hits you. Uh, I'm telling you, it hurts. And they began to stone him. Meanwhile, 
the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, we always think sometimes this was when Saul was just a young kid. Now, he, he's, he's a man. He was old enough to be there. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And you lay your feet usually, at, you, you lay your cloaks usually at the feet of the person who organizes uh, the stoning or organizes the situation. So Paul was a leader then, and he was probably the organizer of this. And while they were stoning him, Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Wow, may God speak to us through that word and that example. Praise the Lord. Amen. So important. I want to give you just a little survey of what got these people so spitting mad and what ended up causing Stephen to give his life, and he was willing to do so for the Lord. How far was Stephen willing to go? He went all the way. How far should we be willing to go to reach hard people? How far? How far? Well, the previous chapter ended with Stephen before the Sanhedrin, and they're given making accusations against him. They're saying, hey, you're blaspheming God. You're speaking against the temple. You're maligning Moses and what he taught us and the law. You're blaspheming these things and you're speaking against them. And they brought this charge against him, which were lies. Because he was speaking and teaching a truth that they weren't willing to accept. So then chapter 7 contains this defense, which is really kind of, in many respects, Stephen trying to reach them and give them a bit of a history lesson. Basically say, the way you recount the history and story of God and his work in our people, you know, maybe there's another way to look at this. And maybe there's more to see than what you've seen. And so I'm going to share it with you. And I'm going to tell you the bold truth as well. And so he begins... So he starts reviewing, from the very beginning, they considered themselves children of Abraham. Abraham was the father of their nation and of their religion and of their, their movement of God's work on planet Earth. And so he began to review this call and how God promised him, and God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God called Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. He wasn't in the promised land, he was in a foreign land. And God called him to come to a land he would later discover where it was, but, he, but God wasn't going to reveal yet where it was, and he would just have to follow the Lord until he got there. And it took a while for Abraham to get there. But he got there. And God said, I'm going to give you this land. The land they were on now, in the present time that we're looking at in Scripture. I'm going to give you this land, but I'm going to tell you, your people, your family... They're going to go down to Egypt, and they're going to be slaves for 400 years. But that nation that enslaves them, it's going to be punished. And, um, and then I'm going to deliver you with a great deliverer who will come and, and take my people out and bring you back to this promised land. So he spoke of another one. Another one would come, and his name was Moses. And Moses did come. But what did the children of Israel do when Moses came, this deliverer that was foretold to Abraham? They resisted him. 
When he first came, he thought they would recognize that he was supposed to be the deliverer. Right? He'd been raised by Pharaoh's daughter, but he was a, a child of Israel. He was 40 years old, so he comes and he saves an Israelite from an Egyptian. But what happens? When he comes the next day to try to resolve a, a dispute between two Israelites, one of them pushed him away and said, Hey, who are you? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And who's made you ruler and head over us? At that point, Moses discovered that, hey, he was found out. He had murdered an Egyptian. His life uh, was not worth much right at that point, and he needed to flee, and so he fled. And for 40 years, he lived in a foreign country, got married, had two kids. But then God calls him back. Through a burning bush, God meets him. And God says, take off your shoes, because on this ground, this is holy ground. This is where I am. And so he had to take off his shoes, and he received God's will and God's word, and he came back to be the great deliverer. But did the children of Israel receive him? No. They resisted him. He did great miracles. Did they receive him? No. They wanted to grumble and resist him. He finally convinced them to follow after all these different plagues and all these different miracles that occurred. They finally decided, okay, we're going to follow, and they followed him out of Egypt. But at the first sign of trouble, they turned on him, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. When they were caught on one side of the Red Sea, and they had the Egyptians hemming them in from the other side, they said, man, we should have stayed in Egypt. Why did we follow you out here? And he kept saying, but I'm called, and God's got great plans for us, and now you're going to see God's great mercy and grace by opening up these waters. And you know the story. They opened up. They walked across on dry, on dry ground. The Egyptians tried to follow, were swept in and drowned. God took care of his people, but God noticed. They grumbled. They resisted. They fought. No sooner did they get across and they started to come to the promised land, right? Then Moses goes off to hear God's word and to receive the Ten Commandments. He comes back, and what did the people do? The people had resisted, and they had rebelled. They got Aaron to make them a golden calf, a god that they could follow and see, because they weren't sure Moses was coming back. He was gone so long. And so they started worshiping this, this other god that was not a god. And Moses came back with the tablets, saw it, was so frustrated, was so distraught and discouraged and upset about it, he threw the tablets and busted them all. And then he took the golden calf and ground it to dust. And then a lot of people lost their lives that day because they had been in rebellion against the Lord. And then what did Moses do? He kept leading the people, and he went back, and God wrote those, that tablet again. And he brought them back to them, but they resisted it. They wouldn't live according to the law. They wouldn't follow it. They wouldn't follow it. Well, then he turns to the matter of God's dwelling, Stephen does. And Stephen acknowledged the role of the tabernacle of Moses. That was by God's design. And God used that as a place to meet with Moses and to guide and lead his people. It, was, it wasn't permanent. It was flexible. It could travel. God allowed it to be a place where he would meet with Moses and with the nation. But the temple of Solomon was not God's idea at all. It was David's idea. It was man's idea. In Isaiah 66, 1 through, through 2, 
And even in our passage today, Stephen says that God recounted this and said this about the temple when they wanted to build it for him. He said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? Do you not understand? I'm too big for this. It's not worthy of me. It's not where I live. But it's what man made. And so they made the temple, and God worked with them. God allowed them to build this thing, and God said, I'll meet with you in the Holy of Holies. I'll meet with you there, but this is not my design. I'm going to let you do this because you want, you want to do this, and you want to have a king. No, you, don't, you don't need one, but you want one. And so I'll work with you where you are, but you're continuing to resist me. You're continuing to resist my plan. And so Stephen began to point these things out, and then he charged the council, this leadership council, of resisting the Holy Spirit just like their ancestors. He said, for, for as your fathers persecuted and killed the prophets who foretold the coming of the Christ, so, they, so you have become murderers and betrayers like them. You killed the one that was foretold. Moses said one would come, and he has come, and you have rejected him. Indeed, you are the ones that aren't keeping the law. You're not keeping God's word. You're, you're resisting him. Well, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. When you don't want to hear the truth, you don't react well to the truth. And they didn't want to hear the truth. And those in the council gnashed their teeth and they yelled at the top of their lungs. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked into heaven. He saw the glory of God standing. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And so he told the council what he saw. And in a rage, they cast him out and began to stone him. For simply telling them what he saw. But that's what he saw. They showed they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know any version of the truth that isn't their own version. We don't want any of it. And the witnesses who brought the false charges, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul, and he will be later known as Paul the Apostle. And as Stephen was stoned, he called upon Jesus to receive his spirit and to not charge his murderers with his death. And in this way, Stephen became the first martyr of the Christian church and of God's followers. He gave his life. So how far did Stephen go? He went all the way. He loved them as far as they needed to be loved. He went the whole distance. He met them and he went as far as he could go with them. How far had God, has God gone and did God go to reach these hard-hearted religious people? I want you to think about that. How far did God go in this passage or in the book of Acts so far or in the life of Jesus so far? How far has God gone? Well, you can go back 
And as you keep going back, you just see that God's gone further and further and further. But just if you just stop at Jesus and move forward, how far has God gone? He's given them, these religious leaders, these folks who thought they were keepers of the law and of the religion of Israel, the, follower, the true followers of God on planet Earth, he's given them three years of Jesus' ministry on Earth, didn't he? Three years. They, he's given them, God did, the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. They got to hear it for three years. They rejected it. They got to see the power of Jesus' life and his work and his ministry. The healings, the signs, the wonders that marked his ministry for three years. They discounted each one of them and, and ignored them or moved them aside. They rejected them for three years. Not to mention, God provided the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, darkness that covered the earth for three hours on his death, on the day, the day he died, the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom, separating so that there was no longer a separation between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. And then numerous people, according to Scripture, that were resurrected from the tombs to life again. And then he gave them the, the resurrection of Jesus himself. And they all concocted this cockamamie story that the disciples came and overpowered a whole squad of Roman soldiers, rolled the stone away and stole his body. Because they were, they're saying that's what happened to him, that's why we can't find his body, he didn't really resurrect. But they knew different. They knew they could not answer that question, so they stayed away from it. Because they couldn't answer it because they could never produce a body. And they never did produce a body because there was no body. But God had given them all that. They rejected it all. And next, God gives the Sanhedrin at least three major opportunities to hear and to see the gospel in action through his followers. Because it continues. First, the apostle Peter and John, in that healing of the beggar that was born blind or lame, who said before the temple all of his life begging, and Peter and John come in one day right before worship, and God does a miracle in the name of Jesus to heal this man, and so he's standing, he's jumping, he's running, he's walking. Wow. And that created a stir. And, and, and Peter and John began to preach the gospel, and people began to respond to the gospel and come to faith in Christ. Wow. But the leaders didn't like it. They couldn't say anything against it, because here stands the man. It was a legitimate miracle, but they didn't like it. They weren't willing to change. They weren't willing to hear. But they understood that these men were uneducated men, and yet they had such boldness, such faith, and such power. And they couldn't explain it. Well, they didn't want to. Well, then a second opportunity. They had another opportunity, these leaders, in the healing of the crowds. Remember the, crowd, the surrounding communities were bringing their sick and laying them in the streets so that even when Peter's shadow came over some of them, they were healed. And all the people who were coming were being healed. It was massive. It was constant. You couldn't deny it. And so what did they do? They went in and arrested, this time not just uh, Peter and John, they arrested all 12 of them. Threw them into jail. We're going to stop this. Trouble is, <coughs> disciples have Jesus who's resurrected on their side. So 
they have an angelic jailbreak. Angels come in, open the doors, they walk out. They go to, they, apparently the authorities didn't even know because they were able to get out covertly. Authorities come back the next day, going to get them, going to bring them before the Sanhedrin for questioning. They go to the jail, no one's there. Crickets. No one's there. And now they're scared. What do we do? Some heads are going to roll because no one's there. Well, then they hear these guys are in the temple. They're, they're back there preaching the gospel. They're not running. They're not hiding. They know it could mean their life. They could go back to jail, but they're not, they're not running from it. They're speaking the truth. And so they go and get them, and they're afraid that they're, they could be stoned for going and getting and roughing up these people that everybody likes. So they're real gentle. Come on, just come with us. Just put your hands behind your back and come quietly. And so they get them, and they bring them before the Sanhedrin. Wow. They threaten them again. They question them again. But they're still not receiving. And then they beat them. They take and they whip them. Wow. And then they tell them, go ahead and go. And get out of here and quit preaching in the name of Jesus. But they watched all these apostles go with a smile on their face. Joyful. Glad that they were kind of worthy to suffer for Christ. And they're shaking their heads. But they're still not getting it. And then they have a third opportunity now in Stephen's honest recounting of the story of their people. You would think by now it would pique their interest. It would pique their interest in considering that there might be a more accurate version of their religious history. There might be something they need to get that they're missing. They know all they have is their own power their own strength, their own selves, but they're not admitting the truth to themselves. And they're missing it. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is extravagantly patient with hard people. Wouldn't you agree? Somebody say amen to that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank the Lord because some of you are hard people. I am a lot of us were hard people. If God had not been patient, we'd still be lost. Thank the Lord. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. I used to always go, God, would you just hurry up? Keep your promise quick. I'm so thankful at this age that God's slow. But it says here, He's not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you. Don't ever forget that, people. Don't ever forget that when you look at a hard person. God is patient with them. God is not surprised. God is not flustered. He's patient with them. Not wanting any to perish. You know, sometimes you might have felt like you want so-and-so to perish. God, if you want to go ahead and throw them in hell, go for it, you know? You might have felt that way. God never feels that way. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't ever, ever forget that. The person that sits on death row because they murdered two people, a mother and her daughter, just to get a priceless antique car 
God is patient with that person and wishes that they would not perish, but they would come to the knowledge of truth and be saved. Just as he is for you and me. We are no better than them or no worse. And they are no better or worse than us. But we like to judge. Thank God that God is patient with us. Not wanting any hard person to perish, but everyone come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So God will give us and any hard person, think about this, an extravagantly generous number of opportunities to respond to his love and repent of their sin. God will give them an extravagantly generous number. How far will you go? When Jesus was asked, well, how, far, how, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said, no, forgive him seven time, 70 times seven. That's how many times. Be patient. Be loving. Be faith-filled. Because I was patient with you. Don't forget that. Be patient. Will you go this far? Will you go that far for another person? It's going to take something else, doesn't it, to be able to go that far. According to the example of Jesus, according to the facts of our passage today, God will, will exhaust enormous resources and pay an extravagant price to win the hearts and souls of hard people and save them from their sin and death. God will pay that price. God will exhaust enormous resources. What about you? What about me? Will we do that? This is the heart of God for us. Stephen was a, was a good guy. But Stephen paid the ultimate price. And God was there with him. Verse 54 through 56 of our passage tells us, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard Stephen's defense, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. And what did he see? He saw the glory of God because he looked to God in his suffering, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's a significant statement, I want you to know. Mostly in Scripture, we read of Jesus doing what? Sitting at the right hand of God. Why would the Lord, who is usually sitting at the right hand of God in Scripture, right hand of the Father, why would he be standing in that moment? Think about it. Why would he be standing in that moment? Sometimes the only time you get yourself standing, right, when you're at football games or basketball games or sports games, is when, you know, when your son does something you're proud of or your daughter does something you're proud of, what happens? Bam, you're off your seat and you're on your feet. You're proud of them. You're excited for them. What other reasons do people stand? They stand in honor. They stand in honor. Because they know it's special. And they want to show value and worth to the person they're standing in honor of. I'm here to tell you something. Jesus was standing in honor of Stephen. 
in honor of his faith, in honor of the price he was about to pay to follow him in his footsteps to pierce the hardness of hard people's hearts. Jesus loves hard people. And he was proud that his follower was joining him in that suffering. He loves extravagantly hard people. He is extremely and extravagantly patient. And he loves his followers who don't shrink back in faith or don't shrink back in love, but they go all the way. They go all the way. I'm not suggesting that you're going to have to go all the way by pain and giving your life for people who are lost so that they might see the truth and come to their senses and be saved. I'm not saying that. I doubt that most of us will do that. But I think God wants us to go the distance for some hard people. Let me go back to those focus questions again. How far should you go to reach hard people? Think about it. How far have you gone to reach hard people? Don't beat yourself up over that, but be honest and real about that. If, if according to the scripture, you're not going very far, well, it's, it's time to realize the love of God for you and the patience God has for you and, and to follow him and ask him, Lord Jesus, fill me with a love that's not my own. I get it. Our love only goes so far. It's not natural for us to want to sacrifice it all for somebody who's hard and we consider worthless. But that's God's heart. So we're going to have to go to God and we're going to have to hang out with Jesus. And when we do, we start acting like him and feeling like him. And we've got to come to him and say, God, give me that heart. I've been right where you're at. I've hated some people in my life. But then when I've come to the Lord and confess and say, God, fill me with love instead of hate for this person, God would do that. The Holy Spirit would come. I would quit resisting the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come and fill me with a love that the moment before I didn't have. And I was able then to lay down my life for them where I couldn't before. That's the way it goes. To what extent will you work with God to suffer, to reach people who don't want to be reached? We have people like that in our lives. To what degree does he wish that none should perish but all come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved? See, God wishes that to the nth degree. Do we? How far does God want us to go in partnership with him to reach hard people, to show and convince them that he is and that he loves them and that he lives in you? How far? Now, we want to also remember in all of this discussion that God is patient with hard people. Verse 10 tells us this, though. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The time of opportunity will suddenly come to an end. I'm here to tell you, it's true. I've watched it. I've seen it. None of us should take lightly our opportunities to either repent or to extravagantly give. If the Lord Jesus is speaking to you about repenting today, obey him and follow that today. Don't let it pass. If Jesus is asking you today to extravagantly give and to be patient with some hard person, do that today. Don't let that opportunity go by. 
though the opportunities are many, they'll suddenly come to an end, and it'll be over. Lastly, we want to look again at what Stephen prayed before he was executed. Look at verse 60. Then he fell on his knees. He cried out in prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and he was dead. You know you recognize that. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed. It's the prayer he prayed before he died on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Stephen is continuing to pray that prayer. That prayer is continuing to be answered. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's not, Father, stick a knife in them and beat the snot out of them and get them out of my life because they're, they're lousy, no good people who don't need forgiveness or love. No, Father, forgive them because they don't really know what they're doing. As they're oppressing me, as they're abusing me, as they're treating me like trash because I know I am a son and daughter of God. Of God. I'm not trash. That prayer continues to be prayed. And we know that not in too many days as Stephen prayed that prayer, Saul, who was present, he was in agreement with Stephen's killing. He was saved in answer to that prayer for grace. God showed grace upon Paul. That hardened, hard person. He saved him. Arthur Pink wrote this, and it's really good to encourage us to keep praying and praying according to those that, that lead us in Scripture. And he says this, in praying for his enemies, not only did Jesus and Stephen, as they did this, set before us a perfect example of how we should treat those who wrong and hate us, but they also taught us never to regard as any, any, as beyond the reach of prayer. Never regard any beyond the reach of prayer. Have you ever felt like somebody was beyond the reach of prayer? I have, too. I'm going to raise my hand. I have too. You ever thought, everybody, you know, others can be saved, but this person, they'll never be saved. Yeah, me too. I had to admit that to the Lord. You probably did too. We're the only two, I guess. We had to admit those things to the Lord. Huh? Uh-huh. And we had to tell him, Lord, I don't believe this person could be saved. I don't believe they'll ever care. I don't believe they'll ever want it. I don't believe. And, and the Lord said, well, good. Thanks for being honest. Now trust me, I'm God. You're not, I'm God. And, I, and I, I found renewed faith to pray for people that I didn't think would come to the Lord. I know we have, praise God. But none are, are beyond the reach of prayer. If Christ and Stephen prayed for their murderers, then surely we have been encouraged to pray now for, for all those that would be the chief of all sinners in our lives. You know who they are. We are called to pray for them. We are not called to judge them, to make their life miserable, to destroy their reputation, to, God forbid, take them out of this life. We're not called to do that. We're called to be ministers of grace and reconcilers. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. So if you think that you're calling and that's your duty, think again. That's not what God's called you to. That's not what Jesus did. And there's no example of that by Christ or his followers for us to follow in doing that. 
Because we're answering this prayer. We're continuing this prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, show them grace and mercy until Jesus returns. Father, give them as many opportunities as they need. And so Christ and Stephen prayed this prayer. Believers, we are never to lose hope. Does it seem like it's a waste of time for you to continue praying for that guy or that woman or that wayward son or daughter of yours? Do you feel like that? Does it seem to be more hopeless every day? Does it look as though they've gotten beyond the, divine, uh, beyond the reach of divine mercy? Well, then it's a God-sized miracle that needs to happen. Maybe you've prayed so long for somebody and they just seem to get more and more entrenched in the world. They get more and more entrenched in the lies of, of today. They've actually, maybe they're becoming more and more an enemy of Jesus. But you continue to pray. Remember the cross. Don't forget the cross. That's what was all paid. Don't forget the blood that was shed. Plead the blood of Jesus over yourself and over that loved one and that person you're praying for. Remember the sacrifice of Stephen. Remember that Jesus and Stephen prayed for their enemies. And then learn not to look on any as beyond the reach of prayer because they're not. They're not beyond the reach of prayer. There are people that actually voiced that I would be beyond the reach of forgiveness. They actually voiced that to me more than once in my life. Well, here you are. I guess I wasn't. And neither are you and neither are others. Most of us in this room, as we close, we have hard people for whom we are praying. Please list them in your mind right now. See them. Maybe yours is a grown son or daughter who has no interest in Jesus. Maybe it's an aged parent who is approaching death and they feel like, eh, I don't need it now. I've lived my life. Maybe it's an unbelieving spouse or a neighbor that you have compassion for. I don't know who it is, but there's a hard people and you have a list of hard people that you think may never come to Jesus, but they need to. They might even be your enemy right now or an enemy of our faith or they might be enemies like Christ and Stephen had who want to put you to death. And yet both Jesus and Stephen prayed for them. Will you pray for them? They wouldn't have prayed for them if there was no hope, right? They would not have prayed for these hard people if there was no hope. I want you to stand with me as we close in prayer today. And I want you to put your hope in a renewed way in God for the hard people that are in your life. Amen.